So the title of the message today is Christians in Enemy Territory. Christians in Enemy Territory. And before I get into it, I did just want to mention a couple things as an introduction. Um, we're obviously in a period where it appears, especially here in America, that we are in societal decline. We see a lot of terrible things happening in our country. We see a lot of unrest, a lot of hatred, uh, a lot of uh, bickering. Um, America is in turmoil right now, and there's a lot of different philosophies or theories of why that is, why things are happening the way they are. Um, and I don't want to get into the details, but one thing that really concerns me is do Christians have the proper perspective and the proper view of the times in which we live. And I have people contact me quite often and they, they want to know, do I think we're living in the end times? Should we be trying to figure out everything prophetically? Uh, should we be trying to figure out if this fulfills this prophecy or if this is this prophecy, whatever it is. Um, and it's hard to answer those questions, because if you look back through history and the history of the church, there has always been times of struggle and strife and persecution and war and famine uh, all down through history and, and especially church history. So is this the end of that? Is this the culmination of that? I don't know. It's hard to say. But I think it is something very important for us to consider as Christians. How should we view the times in which we live? Um, and so the point I'm going to make is our eschatology will influence how we respond to what is happening. If you're not familiar with the term eschatology, it's the study of the end times. It's the study of the doctrine of the end times as they are laid out for us in scripture. And our eschatology, the way that we view events and what will happen historically, in the, or what will happen in the end times according to God's word, is going to have an effect on how we view the things that are happening around us. So for Christians, it's very, very important that we understand and have a proper viewpoint of what's going on and that we see things biblically. Uh, you know, right now, I hear people constantly saying uh, they're taking the pre-tribulation viewpoint that things are heating up, things are getting crazy, the Lord's going to return, his church will be taken away, and things will get really bad. That's the, the, the pre-trib rapture viewpoint. Um, and I'm going to get into that in the coming weeks. I have concerns about that viewpoint, mainly because of what it does to the cause of the gospel. And I'm not going to get into it in detail. If you hold that viewpoint, that's fine. We're not talking about um, essential Christian doctrines here, but I think we're talking about doctrines that are important, important for us to consider as we move forward as Christians. So I think it's going to be something very um, interesting in the coming weeks. And then there's the, the post-trib uh, viewpoint, which, which I lean more towards. And if we hold that viewpoint, we're going to realize that we need to prepare. We need to realize that we are in a battle against evil. And I'll get into that more. Uh, but really, the point I want to make is we should see everything through a biblical lens. So in the coming weeks, and I, and I want to give my mom credit because last week she messaged me and said that I should really start looking at preaching through the book of Revelation. And I, I don't think I'm going to go through the book of Revelation like I've done other books. 
I'm still working on the book of Romans, but because of what's happening in the world and because of the changes that have taken place in our church, I've sort of put that on hold. I'm still going to go through a certain part of Romans, but I think it would be very beneficial and very interesting and very edifying for people if we really started going into the book of Revelation, but I'm not going to do it uh, expositorily, probably verse by verse. I'm going to be, I've been studying that book extensively for a while. I'm going to be taking parts of it that I think are very important for us to look at and to help us in our, in our understanding of what's happening in the world around us and what we could maybe anticipate in the coming months and years as we go forward. So we'll be looking at Revelation, the book of Daniel, first and second Thessalonians, other books that deal with end times, prophecies and eschatology uh, going forward off and on. Like I said, we're going through a time when so many things are changing and there's so many topics that need to address, be addressed. I think as a pastor, you really have to be fluid. It would be very difficult in this day and age to just preach through a book of the Bible um, because we want to be sure we're, we're addressing current events and helping people keep a biblical viewpoint. So that's sort of sort of how I'm looking at things going forward. But I started a book last night, and it was very interesting. I just finished another book by a man. You've probably heard of him, Francis Schaeffer, who I guess you could say is a Christian philosopher. He was a cultural analyst. He, he was a brilliant man. He died in 1984, but over his life, he wrote multiple books about uh, culture, and how Christians should engage the culture and how we should look at the things I've been talking about, how we should view things biblically. And I just finished his book, uh, A Christian Manifesto, which, which I absolutely loved. And then last night I started another book of his called How Should We Then Live? And he goes through the history of the, the, the church and really the history of Western society and looks at its decline and the causes of that and how things have changed and how it has helped uh, shape the way that we think now. But one thing I really wanted you to look at, if you look at the cover of this book, he's got two uh, paintings on there. And the left, the one on the, I think it's your right or my left, it's Christ on the Cross. It's called The Raising of the Cross by Rembrandt. Uh, just an amazing painting. And then on the other side, he's got a painting called uh, Nude Descending a Staircase. And I forget who the artist is, but he uses those two paintings because like myself, Francis Schaeffer, uh, loved art and what art does as a reflection of society, how, how art reflects the way people thought and the way people viewed the world. And it really is fascinating because if you go back through art history, art typically centuries ago tended to revolve around biblical themes, around the Christian message, around the gospel or nature. And now if you look at you know so-called modern art, what we call art nowadays really isn't art at all. It's depravity. It's it's junk. It's garbage. Um, a lot of what's put out nowadays, whether it's painting or music or anything else. So you see the degra degra degradation of society reflected quite often through the arts. And Francis Schaeffer addresses that very well in many of his works. And I think I'm going to get into that as we as we go through Revelation as well. But I wanted to share a portion of this book because as I was reading it last night, it's, it was the introduction um, it really applied to what I was thinking about regarding today's message. Uh, regarding those two paintings, it says, Thus the rise of Western thought and culture is depicted on the upper left corner of the cover with Rembrandt's painting of the raising of the cross, and the decline is depicted by Marcel Duchamp's painting of nude descending a staircase, epitomizing the fragmentation of modern life and culture. And I thought, wow, 
that's really the culture, especially in America, that we are in right now. It's a fragmented, hate-filled, violent, ignorant, apathetic culture that Christians are trying to make sense of. But I really like this because the title of the book is, How Should We Then Live? And it says, Schaefer's question to each of us, how should we then live, is especially urgent in our own day as we see the growing disintegration and decline of truth and morality throughout our world. What then is the answer that Schaefer offers in response? And this applies directly to the message today. It is a commitment to God's word as truth. It is a compassion for a culture that is lost and dying without the gospel. It is a commitment to the costly practice of truth in the midst of the intellectual, moral, and philosophical battles of our day. It is living in the power and reality of the God who is there, bearing witness, bearing the witness of his truth across the full spectrum of life and culture. So I think what he's really saying in a nutshell is the way we deal with our culture from the beginning of the church until the time in which we live is we live out the commands of scripture. We live and we move forward in the cause of the gospel. And that's what I hope you guys see today as we get into this message. So the title of the sermon again is Christians in Enemy Territory. And we truly are in enemy territory. And I'm not just saying that metaphorically or symbolically because of what's going on in the world. Christ himself told us that we were in enemy territory, that the enemy of the cross of Christ is who is in control of this world. If you look at John, pull this up here and make it a little larger for you guys. John 18, 36 and 12, 31 says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I love the picture of that word realm because what Christ is alluding to there is there is a heavenly realm, there is a worldly realm. Um, we could get into interdimensionality later, but there are different dimensions of existence. And the, the plane that we exist on is not the one that Christ is in right now. He's in the heavenly realm or the heavenly dimension. We are in the earthly dimension. The earthly dimension is the realm, quite honestly, of Satan. That is, we are in enemy territory right now. We're in Satan's territory. John 12, 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan was defeated at the cross. And the reason he is seeking to destroy mankind is he is in a rage. He, know he, he knows he has lost the battle and he knows he is going to be cast out of this world. You know, many uh, who are not well-versed in Christian doctrine believe that uh, we're going to spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. No, we will be with the Lord in eternity, but his kingdom will be here. And that's what we'll see as we start going through different portions of the book of Revelation and we start studying eschatology in the coming weeks and months is that this earth will be what it was made to be. We will be who we were created to be originally before the corruption of sin and the fall of man. So Satan will be cast out. He is the ruler of this world right now, but he is an imposter somewhere and he's in a place that he does not belong and he's seeking to destroy it and he's seeking to destroy us. The condition of the world, why are things the way they are? 
Why is the city of Portland being destroyed night after night after night with really nothing being done about it? Why are people living in such fear of this virus that now they've shown is really not even as, as dangerous as the, as the yearly flu, but people are literally horrified of it? Why are things, why is it so hard to tell what's true and what's false? Why is there so many lies and so much darkness in the world? Why are people suffering so much in the world? And what we're talking about is what, why is the condition of the world the way it is? And that question is answered again from the book of John uh, 3, 19 and 20. This is the judgment that the light, who's the light? Notice the capital L, it's Christ that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So I hope what you're starting to see here is what I talk about all the time, the contrast between Christ and the world, between Christians and the world. They're totally different, totally opposite of each other. Now, he talks about sin. Wayne Grudem defines sin in a way that I really like. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, acting out sin, attitude, or nature. Now, remember last week we talked about attitude? Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Our nature is sinful the Bible tells us that, Romans 3, uh, Romans 3, 9, uh, 10 through 12, I think it is. No one does good. No one seeks after God. No one understands. All have become worthless. Our nature is corrupt. James tells us about that as well in his book. That affects our attitude, which affects our acts. See, that's why that, that message was so important last week. But what I want you to think about is the fact that some of the most sinister, prideful, and relentless agendas in opposition to the truth of the gospel and the Christian faith that we are confronted with today are explained by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Humanism and pride are driving forces in all of these. And I hope you guys in the coming months as well would really start to get a grasp of what humanism or secular humanism is. Because if you understand secular humanism and you understand the gospel, it helps you identify very clearly what's happening around you. And it really polishes your discernment. It increases your level of discernment. Because really what we're dealing with is secular humanism, which is completely opposed to Christianity, run rampant in our society right now. Now, I want you, as I read through this, I just want you to think about the things that are going on in the world. As I read through this portion of scripture, and it's a long portion of scripture, the it's it's quite small in the printing here to try to fit it on the screen, but hopefully you guys will be able to read it. Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, you guys remember when I was preaching through Romans 1, no one has an excuse by saying, well, I just don't believe in God, so I should get a break. Now, every human being ever created believes in God. They just choose to deny that belief. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You cannot look at the wonder of creation and the complexity and the perfection and the perfect pinpoint balance of creation and ever claim that there is not an intelligent, creative mind behind everything we see in creation. So that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. We are to live in gratitude. Again, attitude. But they became futile in their speculations. Now, this is where we start seeing these words of Scripture exhibited so clearly in the world around us. What we see is the futility of secular humanistic speculations carried out on a grand scale in the world around us right now, and especially in America. And their foolish heart was darkened. Picture the rioters in Portland the last couple of nights that have been burning the American flag and have been burning Bibles. They're darkened. They're consumed with ignorance. They're controlled by evil. I can almost guarantee you, not one of those people who burn the flag or burn the Bible has any understanding of the Constitution or what the Bible teaches. None. They have no idea what they're rebelling against. Because evil leads to apathetic ignorance, and that's what we're seeing. Professing to be wise, now we're talking about the uh, those that are egging on those that are doing these things in society, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, humanism, and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. At this time, when Paul wrote this, people worshipped all kinds of different gods. Gods that resembled humans, gods that resembled animals, gods that resembled bulls. Moloch was symbolized by an owl. I think Baal was symbolized by a bull. You see? So their gods were very clearly portrayed to them through symbolism. We still, we probably have more gods nowadays, but they're more subtle. Entertainment, comfort, money, the different things that, that are worshipped now, but there's still so many false gods of man and, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. Therefore God, now this is what happens, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They're falling into depravity. God's grace sustains their very existence, but because of their rebellion, God lets them slip away into their rebellion. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, I want you to really think about that verse as you look at what's going on in so much of the modern church. So much of the modern church is absolutely obsessed right now through the influence of secular humanism with the needs of people, perceived needs. People need comfort. People need healing. People need programs, whatever it is, that the gospel isn't even considered. Well, if we're helping people and we're making them feel better, we're doing what we're supposed to do. No, nowhere in Scripture does it say that. If we're proclaiming the gospel and souls are being saved, then what happens? The things that we thought needed to be addressed are automatically taken care of. So they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That is modern Christianity. That is our modern world. Who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. 
for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Homosexuality. It was just a few years ago where homosexual marriage was accepted in America. And now look at the condition we're in. What's the next step? Pedophilia. There's a strong effort right now in America to make pedophilia an acceptable psychological condition. It's just the way some people are. After that is brought in and society accepts that, the next one will be bestiality, love of animals. It will just, the degradation will just continue and continue and continue unless we push back with the gospel. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. Being filled, now listen, just picture this, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who have practiced such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Folks, that's the world we live in nowadays. That's the world we live in. That's, that's the world of the enemy that's being portrayed right there. And we are Christians in enemy territory. With sin increasing throughout society and the world, here in America, we're confronted constantly with immorality as the new normal. Now, isn't this interesting? Because like I said, I'm going back through a lot of my sermons from the last five or six years. And this is one that I had originally wrote. I don't know, three or four years ago, and I used that term new normal. Now, that term is being used as a brainwashing technique for people. If you tell people this is a new normal, this is a new normal, this is a new, the new normal, what do they do? They start believing that this is the new normal, even though what they're believing makes no sense, is not based on, based on fact or truth, and is absolutely absurd. That's why the things that have happened in society have been able to come in and happen in such a way. Because people think, well, this is just the new normal. You see? Very important to look at these things. Constantly with immorality is the new normal, with violence, increasing addiction. The opioid crisis is the new cash cow for the rehab industry. The rehab industry relies on secular humanism. That's why it's such a goldmine. It's void of the gospel. All of these will continue to get worse because society's solutions fail. It may seem overly simplistic, but it's the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only true solution for all of it because the core issue of everything I've talked about is what? Sin. The core issue is sin. I had a man call me the other day or contact me the other day from back east. He's a pastor, and he lives in an area that's just being inundated with meth addiction and all kinds of other things, and he wanted to know if Recovery Reformation, that ministry, you know, offered a program. And he was, he's a reformed pastor. He's very knowledgeable of what he does. He's a godly man. And, and he understood what I was saying. I told him, I said, no, the whole point of Recovery Reformation is trying to get across to these churches that there is no need for programs. And he agreed. 
We just need the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are dealing with one issue that all other issues that we struggle with stem from. The issue of the sinful condition of fallen humanity. That is what we see carried out on a grand scale right now. That is what is happening. Immorality will increase and be promoted and endorsed in the mainstream more and more. Folks, you cannot argue that point. I don't even watch the mainstream news anymore because it's a waste of time. It's all lies and a promotion of immorality, secular, humanistic, sinful direction is what we see in the mainstream news. Christianity will be increasingly reviled and attacked. Now, one thing I wanted to say, I mentioned the guys burning the Bibles in Portland the last couple of nights. I don't think they were attacking Christianity. Like I said, I, I doubt one of them understood anything about Christianity. I believe they see the Bible as representing what they consider to be their enemy. Right-wing conservative America. I think that's what they were lashing out against. Just a little observation that I wanted to make there. Those who Now, this, this is going to be important. Those who expose and fight back with the truth of the gospel will be painted as the bad guys. That's how Christianity is going to be attacked. I don't think for right now, Christianity is going to be attacked like with, you know, Nazi stormtroopers knocking on your door like they did with the Jews in World War II or before World War II. We will be portrayed as intolerant, uncompromising, cruel and unaccepting, intolerant, those kind of things. And that's already happening. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are there people in the world being physically persecuted? Absolutely. And that's one of the sad things about American Christianity. We pay so little regard to the fact that our brothers and sisters all over the world are suffering for the name of Christ. While we focus on building bigger and fancier and more comfortable air-conditioned churches. You see? So blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is Jesus speaking. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christ tells us you will have persecution. It's just part of being a Christian. Why? Because we are in enemy territory. It's just the way it is. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now, we know the condition of those that are lost, those that are not in Christ, those that are dead in their sin and trespasses. So how do we relate to this world? How do we relate to those that are not that are enemies, that are happy with this world, that are ignorant of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do Christians view these things? How do we deal with the world that we're in right now? Can we ignore and not help someone who is condemned and heading for death in an eternal sense? Right there is a big key, eternal sense. If someone insults you, you have to make the decision. Am I going to be insulted? And concerned about my own rights, or am I going to be concerned about the cause of the gospel? When you look at things that way, you automatically will be able to absorb more abuse 
because you're doing it for the cause of Christ and you're not letting your pride and your own feelings get hurt. How do we fight back against such a massive and forceful tide of evil? The answer to that question is after the comment in Romans 6.23. Sorry, I forgot to switch verses here, you guys. Here we go. After the comment, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the answer. We fight back against a massive and forceful tide of evil by helping people to see that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God and eternal is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord is the opposite of everything we see happening in the world around us. It is the absolute antithesis to the philosophy of the enemy, which is personified through secular humanism. We're told in Scripture how to reach sinners and help them. So if you're wondering, how do I relate to this world? How do I deal with all this animosity and all this hatred and all these lies that people are just absorbed with? How do I deal with what's going on in the world from a Christian perspective? We are told in Scripture how to reach sinners, how to help them, and how to deal with them. The problem is we need to unwind the long tangle of worldly influence in the church that has confused such a clear scriptural teaching. That's why Christians are struggling so much nowadays, because the church for generations now has been so in, intertwined with secular humanism and a worldly way of doing things that many Christians do not have the armor of protection that they need, and they don't have the arsenal of weapons that they need to exist behind enemy lines. And that's what I hope to help you guys build and surround yourselves with. And it's all in the world, word of God. With sin so blatant and accepted in the public realm, and opposition to sin portrayed as hateful and intolerant, much of the modern church is in the process of inventing new humanistic doctrines to conform to society while suppressing or outright rejecting the authority of Scripture. Folks, if your church is relying, like I've said a million times, on programs, psychiatry, psychology, anything of this world rather than the authority and sufficiency of scripture, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you either need to pray that that church is brought to repentance and comes back in line with the authority and sufficiency of scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ, or you need to go find a new church. Secular humanism and true Christianity are diametrically opposing viewpoints that cannot and will not mix. The two are absolutely opposite. They cannot be mixed or you have corruption. Very important to study this. So how do we Christians deal with, associate with, and help those in the world? And sadly, much of the visible church who seem committed to sin and opposed to the Christian faith. How do we exist and function and prosper and bear fruit when we are behind enemy lines, when we exist in enemy territory? Like everything else, we go to God's word. I'm going to give you some examples here. Now you'll start seeing the answers to all these questions I've been posing. How did Jesus engage with and help sinners? Jesus, more than anyone, knew what it was to be behind enemy lines in enemy territory. The world hated him. So how did Jesus engage with and help sinners? First of all, we know that Jesus ate with sinners. Now that's often misused and taken out of context. People will say, well, I, you know, I, I, I go to this false religion or I go to this false thing because 
Um, I just shine with the light of Christ, so I engage with these people that way. No, Christ went and shared the gospel. He didn't become a part of what they were doing in their sinful lifestyle or in their lives. He ate with sinners because he was using that to proclaim the gospel to them, to bring them out of their sin. Those who came to believe repented and followed him. The gospel leads to repentance. So don't use that verse out of context where it talks about Jesus ate with sinners. That's why the Pharisees judged him. The only reason he ate with sinners was so that he could share the truth of the gospel with them and show them the way out of their sins. He didn't conform to them. They ended up being conformed to, them, to him through repentance. Very important thing to understand. Matthew 4, 17 says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the first thing he said in ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means is matanoeo in Greek, which is to think differently. Repentance, the Greek word matanoia, is reversal. No, not notice it's not a it's not just a partial change it's a reversal so that goes back to my earlier point if you're walking in sin you're on a path of secular humanism thinking you can figure the way out or you, or the world has the the answers to all the things you're suffering through you're walking completely in the opposite direction of the gospel of Jesus Christ you're, you're walking away from the cross when you repent through the proclamation of the gospel and the Holy Spirit grants you repentance and belief and faith in Christ, you turn completely around and walk the opposite direction. You see, it's an absolute opposite lifestyle from the worldly lifestyle that exists in enemy territory. Let's look at Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the Christian message. Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. One of the most difficult things for us to get our heads around from a human perspective. He says in Matthew 5, 43 and 45, 43 through, through 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How do you love your enemies? You can't love your enemies if you're looking at things from a worldly perspective. You can only love your enemies if you're looking at things from an eternal perspective. That is the only way. You see? That is the only way. Jesus tells us to share the gospel, to love all we can, but not to continue to share the gospel with those who despise us. So he tells us to love our enemies. We can only love our enemies if we're, if we're seeing them in an eternal perspective and realizing that even though our they are our enemy, they are made in the image of God. And even though they're dead in their sins and trespasses and they are living completely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they want to destroy everything we stand for, destroy us because of what we stand for. If we see them eternally and we share the gospel with them, they've been one for Christ. Now they're repented and they're following Christ. But Jesus also tells us to share the, tells us to share the gospel, to love all we can, but not to continue to share the gospel with those who despise it. 
remember the value of the gospel. You are sharing the most precious truth in all of creation. That's why he tells us in Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Folks, if people just reject, reject, reject and revile you and revile you and revile you and want nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not cheapen it by dragging it through the mud over and over again and letting them spit on it. Move on. This is one thing I tell people. I told the man the other day that was asking me about recovery reformation. I said, you know this as a pastor. Christianity is a small percentage endeavor. We are striving to preach the gospel because we know what? That a remnant is going to be saved. That word is all through scripture. But that percentage decreases, gets even smaller when you start dealing with the whole recovery thing. But there are those in Christian recovery obsessed with saving every addict that comes in front of them or every alcoholic. Should we share the gospel with everyone? Yes. Should we pray for everyone? Yes. But we have to understand, unless the Holy Spirit brings them to salvation, there's nothing else we can do. And when they are reviling and attacking and they hate what you are giving them, there is nothing wrong with letting them go and then praying for them. Do not cheapen the gospel message. And then Jesus shows us how to love in the most beautiful ways. One of the most beautiful pictures we have in Scripture is John 8, 1 through 12. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the, walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Legally, from the Mosaic law, they thought they were putting Christ in a corner and he would have to condemn her. But what did he do? He brought the gospel. Who of you is without sin? Who, whatever one has no sin, let him be the one to throw the first stone. That's a great lesson for all of us. But what he's showing is the amazing love that he had to this woman. He said, go, sin no more, because he was going to pay for his, her, her sins himself. You see, that's what he was. that's what he was getting across to her. For those who reject us and the message of the gospel we bring, Jesus tells us in Luke 9, 5, And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. Shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. Share the gospel the best you can. Pray for people. 
pray that they would come to salvation in Christ. But if people reject the gospel, you've got to understand it's not your job to win them. Our job is to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one that transforms people, makes them a new creation, and brings them to belief in Christ. So we've seen how Christ engaged with sinners. Now, how did Paul engage with and help sinners? Now, we're seeing another example of, of how the Apostle Paul engaged and helped sinners. Paul preached the gospel constantly. 1 Corinthians 9.23, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He Everything he did was focused on the cause of the gospel. This is why I always talk about everything we do in our ministry has to be following in line with the cause of the gospel. Everything we do with our trips to Kenya, the gospel is the leading point of what we are doing. You see? We need to be helping sinners rather than judging them. That's something else Paul really hit home with. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. See? So we're to help sinners rather than judging them. Folks, a lot of the judgment that's misunderstood in Scripture comes from the fact that we are to judge what we are told. We are to judge whether something is true or false. You see? The church cannot ignore flagrant sin. This is a big one that Paul constantly preached on when it came to dealing with sinners, especially within the church. It is actually, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, and I have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul did not want flagrant sin within the church. If someone is flagrantly sinning, they refuse to repent, they are to be removed from the church. So we're seeing the different ways that sin is dealt with from within the church, from that perspective, from that context. Now, folks, understand that we have to associate with immoral and sinful people while we are in this world, while we are in enemy territory. But we must strive to maintain the purity of the church. That was always Paul's main concern. And he really brings this point home beautifully in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, and 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Folks, what we see happening in the world should not shock us. It is what the world is about. But actually, I wrote you to not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? He's saying, let the world be the world. Do not judge the, Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That does not happen in the modern church. 
2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You can't mix the world and Christianity. You see? The purity of the church should be one of our main concerns in everything. When needed, Paul shook the dust from his feet as the Lord had taught him. It says in Acts 13, 49 through 52, And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Notice how he closes that. The disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. He didn't get hung up on the fact that people rejected what he was preaching. He focused on carrying the gospel to new ears. Beautiful. So how are we as Christians, based on these examples, believers, how are we as Christian believers to engage with and help sinners in a sinful world? We are to follow the teachings and examples from Scripture like I just showed you some samples of. We are to forsake the world and its ways. Do not depend on anything other than the gospel through the world of through the word of God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. See? We are to forsake the world and its ways. We are to bring the light of Christ shining into the darkness of an evil and sinful world. So important in the times in which we live. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does any, anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Pray that that's what you can be in the world. And you will, you will push back against so much of the darkness that we're struggling with these days. We share the gospel with every sinner we can. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. What he's telling us there is we were all sinners. We're never in any position to judge people because of their sin, because we all come from the same place. The only way that we're saved is by God's grace. We were in rebellion against him, in love with our sins and trespasses, and by his grace, through the power of the gospel, he saved us. We share the gospel with love, with the love of Jesus Christ. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. 
bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do everything from love. The way we deal with and engage with the sinful world, with the lost sinners in it, is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's so simple, folks. That's a reason I hit on this point constantly. Because what we are trying to get across is it's so simple. We just preach the gospel. We don't need to add anything to it. Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's what we pray happens to all those that we share the gospel with. And remember, sometimes every conceivable effort on our part is exhausted, and all we can do is pray. Not as a last resort, but as the only weapon left in our bag. We should begin with prayer, and when we've used everything we possibly can, we still pray. Praise the Lord that prayer is our most powerful weapon. James 5.16 is what I'm going to close with. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So the way we affect this world, the way that we push back against all the insanity that we see around us right now, the way we do things as Christians, like I said, it's so simple. Preach the gospel to yourself. Study God's word, study the gospel, share it with others, and shine with the light of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for your word. And Lord, I ask that you would bless each one of us, that we would be more effective in the cause of the gospel. That you would uh, enable us to preach your word with confidence and boldness and courage. Uh, that we would make a stand for you in the midst uh, and shine with your light in the midst of so much darkness and sin and evil that surrounds us. And Lord, even though the world seems out of control, we don't have to be worried or anxious because we know that you are ultimately in control and that everything happens according to your will and according to your plan. And we know that all things work for the good of those that love you that are called according to your will and purpose. Lord, guide us through this coming week. Help us to stay on the narrow path, and please open up doors of opportunity for the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching. If you'd like to visit our website, it's the way, the letter R, 122.org. If you have any questions, please email me at thewayministrychurch at outlook.com. And folks, like I said at the beginning, we have a new trip coming up in just a couple months. Uh, to continue our work in Kenya. We need a lot of help with that. Uh, we're just starting our fundraising for that trip. So please continue, continue, please consider donating and helping us with that. And I believe if you click on the screen, that link should go through. If not, you can just go to the website directly. Until next week, God bless you. 